travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 65, Scuba Diving in Southeast Asia with Chris Mitchell. Southeast Asia is one of the world's best regions for scuba diving. From wreck diving to focusing on spotting creatures like the whale shark, Southeast Asia has you covered. Whether you're looking to get certified as a diver or take advanced courses, the region's warm waters, abundant coral, and of course, diverse cultures takes things to the next level, making it an incredible area to choose to dive. Today, we'll talk to a diving enthusiast about his experience in the region under the water, as well as discuss some of our own. I'm Trevor Ranges, recording from Bangkok, Thailand, and as always, I'm with Scott Coates, but this week he is in... Yangon, Myanmar. I'm here working. I'm over here for 12 days, and it's been six or seven years since I've been in Yangon, so I'm quite excited to be here. I'm actually on a hotel that's a, a hotel that is a boat hotel on the river right here in Yangon, so I'm very close to water, although I'm not going to do any scuba diving in it. You know, we uh, we didn't really talk about that when we planned this episode, but Myanmar has so many islands, that must be a really spectacular place to dive. To dive. Yeah, I'm sure it probably is. I've heard great things of the archipelago down kind of bordering Thailand in the south. Um, one day, one day. But uh, hey, we're getting into diving, and I got certified, I think, in probably one of the worst places you could do it, and that's a glacier-fed lake in Alberta, Canada. I'm sure there's worse places, but... Um, I am from Calgary, and the only place if you did your training there to get certified was in Lake Minnewanka, which is literally glacier-fed. We had to wear like super thick wetsuit with a hood and three-fingered <laughs> gloves, and we did That's that awesome. so that we could go diving in Cuba. So I remember I was a young kid, just certified, went diving in Cuba, then got my advanced certification on the Barrier Reef as a as a backpacker logged about 50 dives and and that's kind of how i got into it how about you that's quite a lot man you know the visibility must have been great in that lake though yeah yeah it was sweet man the gravel bottom was great and just no it i don't know if it was i don't really <laughs> really how old were you how old was i i think i man i must have been 20. okay okay well you probably should remember that i started you know we spent a lot of time as kids in the caribbean and, and islands off of south america and and i was snorkeling before i can even remember literally like you know like two years old something like that and uh, my dad took me and my sister diving a few times um when we were like 10 years old uh, off the off of mexico and we didn't have certifications or anything like that so i sort of was comfortable in the water diving snorkeling even before I got my certification, which was on Koh Samui and diving off of Koh Tao in 1996. Mm -hmm. um, so that that was still pretty pristine back then. And I've probably done about 50 dives now. I've, I've kept a pretty good logbook, um, though I haven't looked at it in a little while. I've never gotten advanced certification, um, not just because I'm against them, but just because I didn't really feel the need to do it. Uh, I know you're not supposed to do wrecks and you're not supposed to do deep dives and caves and stuff like that without it. Um, but for some reason, I guess I just talk people into letting me do them anyway. 
um, in the region. I mean, Hawaii, obviously, I don't know if you dove when you were in Hawaii. Some of the diving in Hawaii is great. Um, Indo, obviously spectacular. Thailand, um, not as impressed as, again, some of like the dives in Indo, but there's still some really good stuff around here. Australia, I did the Great Barrier Reef. I did a, a liverboard. Um, I did Malaysia. We talked about the perhensions one time. I did perhensions back in 96, and I thought it was pretty awesome. You guys went more recently, and it was a bit bit more crowded now, huh? Yeah, for for the region, I have dove off Koh Chang in Thailand, Koh Tao in Thailand, Ao Nang Gabi, Similan Islands a year and a bit ago, all mm, in Thailand. Similan nice, yeah. is like world-class, but I don't know when we were there that day I, I don't know what was missing man it was it was nice but not world class and then as a backpacker i dove off natrang vietnam in about 96 i it was just super average but we wanted to dive and then yeah perhentian islands i think that was back in 2006 and and, and yeah it was all right uh but yeah i've always i don't know something about diving like i really liked it and then i i don't know i just sort of saw the fish and that and then i was like yeah okay i think i maybe need to do something more exciting like i need to do a wreck dive or something kind of or just be at a site that blows me away because well i like it i i don't make time for it in vacation like i don't plan diving trips anymore or anything yeah you know i mean i love i love snorkeling and i just even just free diving like whenever i'm cruising around any island i always keep a mask in my bag and i'll just jump in the water and i got like my swim fins so so i love being in the water i love looking at coral i love looking at fish but but i'm kind of with you like with the diving I love if there's a wreck, I'll go and dive a wreck, um, or I'm I'm interested in seeing like sharks or manta rays or, or whales, anything big like that. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm I'm more of a, a snorkeler these days. Uh, just a little bit bored with with taking the time and the effort to dive. But I got a feeling that today uh, having an expert in the region on the show uh, might spark the, the 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 drive to dive again. Yeah, I I'm kind of. I think looking to be excited again. So hopefully uh, our guest is going to wow us and get us a bit excited about uh, getting under the water. Well, let's invite him on. Our guest today is a British scuba diving journalist originally from Plymouth, UK. Chris Mitchell has been living and working in Asia for the last 15 years. He co-authored a book, Thailand's Underwater World, and has written for most of the major scuba diving magazines, including Sport Diver and Scuba Diving in the US, Asian Diver and Scuba Diver Australasia. Chris joins us from Bangkok. Hi, Chris. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We've been meaning to do kind of a more in-depth scuba episode for quite a while, and you are the person. <laughs> well, I'll try to be. Well, Chris, let's start way at the beginning. What first brought you to Asia to live and work? Scuba diving. Um, I had learned to dive in the UK, um, which I do not recommend to anyone, <laughs> and I... Uh, basically almost gave up as soon as I began uh, and then when I went backpacking in Australia um, I got bit by the bug and then when I arrived in uh, yeah, the usual rite of passage do six months in Australia then come to Southeast Asia I came to Thailand and I realized that the diving here was twice as good and half the price as Australia so uh, and then I mm. that was 2003 hmm Cool. Um, it's lucky you got bit by the scuba bug in Australia, because usually people get bit by something much more deadly. <laughs> that's that's right. Yes, I, I was lucky not to uh, to be attacked by any of the wildlife. Hmm. Okay, so you, it was about 2003, you came to Thailand, and, and then did you stay here ever since then? Or did you go home for a while, have to sell everything you own, and then come back? Or how did the transition occur? 
Um, well, basically, I had been given a, um, a golden goodbye by the, the last company I worked for. So they gave me a substantial amount of money as my redundancy, which was, uh, as you can imagine, lovely. And uh, so I managed to live on that for quite a few years. Um, and that is why I kind of began my, I'm, I'm not sure I would call it a career, that sounds far too grand, but that's when I began writing for scuba magazines. Um, because the thing for me at that point was that obviously when you pick up a scuba magazine, it's full of amazing photographs. Um, back then I didn't know how to take photos underwater. I could take bad ones, but I couldn't take good ones. And um, I just kept pestering the editors of the various magazines to let me write, and they kept saying, well, until, until you've got some photos, you can't do it. And then my break came, sadly, um, when the tsunami happened uh, in December 2004, because one of the um, <clears throat> first boats to go out uh, within a couple of weeks later, uh, because obviously at that point, there had been no boats going out to the reefs, no boats going to the Simlin Islands. No one was really sure what they were going to find when they dived back into the water. Um, there was a lot of concern that the reefs would have been completely smashed to pieces because obviously the, the tsunami is a pulse of water and as it connects with immobile right. objects, it releases the force of the, the pulse, which is obviously why it causes so yeah. much. Hey, just for our listeners, I, I believe the tsunami was 2005, yeah? And were you based in Phuket at the time? Uh, I, I was actually living in Kaolack, yeah. Well, okay, oh, then, Kaolack, all right. Yeah, which really got it. Um, yeah. So... Um, so that was the thing is that uh, I was asked by one of the editors because he knew I was around in Kaolack. Uh, someone had failed to produce a piece from about what state the reefs were in in Thailand after mm. the tsunami. So I, I was on one of the boats anyway. So I wrote the piece and, and he found another guy who had also been out there and taken shots and he was happy. Most photographers don't want to write. They just want to take the photos. So he was more than happy to put his photos in my my work and then it kind of snowballed from there wow well that's i mean it is weird how something fortunate can happen to you from something really bad but that was that was your in you were the guy well yeah i mean it's um it's one of those things whereby uh obviously you sort of you know you wish it had been a different situation but uh, mm. i think i think also that as well though was the kind of the end of the days of magazines anyway i mean obviously we all live now in a in an age where magazines are really struggling to survive and so you know that back then it was still that kind of you had to work your way up you had to pay your dues you had to show persistence and i did i did all that because i'd done that back in the uk i used to be um i used to moonlight as a, a it journalist so i kind of was familiar with the process of how pitching and writing to magazines and newspapers worked so it was just mm. a case of of moving over to a different industry yeah so i guess i guess you bought a better camera then uh, and you do all your own photographs nowadays well uh, what happened it was a very long and painful and expensive process to start taking good photos underwater um and i uh ended up meeting um on uh Colanta, uh this lovely chap called jez Triner. Uh, he's still a dear friend of mine now and he is the guy that co-authored the Thailand's Underwater World book with me uh, Jez did all the photos and I did the text so it was, it was kind of the book was my idea but if, essentially the reason I wanted to do it was because Jez had not had his 
photos published in a book before and I just thought well this is crazy I mean they're, they're such great photos um, you know the book should be a showcase because I was you know, fully aware that no one's actually going to read what I'd written um, so uh, and, and we did that and that was a culmination of us actually doing a lot of travelling together and going to different places like the Maldives and uh, stuff like that to to write for a variety of magazines. So that was really good fun, and that's actually when we both felt like, because again, like Jez had lived on liverboards, so he'd just be taking photos day in day out, which is why his photography was so good. Because um, like with anything, you you got to practice. It doesn't all just come naturally. Um, and little by little, uh, as I was diving so much, and then I would learn from him, and obviously talk to as many other people as I could while I was diving. But it took me literally until about four or five years ago to actually take photos that were magazine quality. And they've been subsequently published, but I still don't consider myself to be a you know, top-notch photographer, photographer or anything. I take pretty good photos that are serviceable. They're workmanlike. <laughs> so, Chris, I mean, you've done a, actually a really good job of kind of painting your backstory and how you ended up here. How long... From becoming a diver, I mean, I'm a paddy guy, so I have my open water in advance. How long did you consider kind of your time from just being a diver to kind of being, let's say, call you a pro? I mean, to the point where you think like, yeah, I'm a good diver. I know what I'm doing. And I can competently like write as a competent diver. How, did, how do you kind of end up pro? Like when do you turn pro? Uh, well, I guess you turn pro like when you when you do the Paddy Dive Master course or you know or the Dive Master course in whatever certification agency you're with. Um, I mean, once you get to the point that you are effectively looking after other divers, um, whether you're a dive guide or if then you go further up the ladder and you become an instructor, uh, it it gets very real then that you you, know, you do have to take it seriously and take care of people because obviously if you're with a bunch of people that have just done their open water course and they've only done two or three dives in their life then mistakes are going to happen and 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 obviously they're going to happen and you want to make sure that they're in a safe environment and that they don't scare themselves to death and they come back and keep enjoying it because just with the photography scuba as well is that the more you do it the better you get at it um there's an interesting factoid that apparently about 50% uh, of people that do the open water course will never dive again. Um, huh. It's kind of like if you do a tandem skydive, you know, you'll, you do one skydive and that's it. You'll never do it again. It's, right. um, it's, it's hard, I think, for people to, you know, fully come into the sport. So the, the, the pro side of things, yeah, is, is, is literally doing the qualification because it's the dive master course. When I did it back in 2004, it, it was quite intense. Um, that is really where you learn all of the aspects of what it takes to be a good diver and to look after other people in the water. And then mm. instructing is exactly what it says. The instructor course is learning how to teach people to dive underwater. So it's actually more about teaching in an environment than it is about diving itself, if that makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. That's pretty cool. You know, you you have convinced me to do my uh, advanced because uh, I've been diving my I've been diving my <laughs> whole life and and I've never bothered to go and get it because I didn't really see the need for for me for it personally. Um, but that's another story. So you've been in the region for over a decade now, more than I guess. And from your website and podcast, Dive Happy, we see that you've dove all over Southeast Asia. Um, you mentioned Australia earlier, but um, if you if you dove elsewhere in the world, how does Southeast Asia compare um, to other places you've dove 
elsewhere in the world. Okay. Well, Southeast Asia and Indonesia and the Philippines mm. in particular are the zenith of scuba diving anywhere yeah. in the world. So uh, Indonesia in particular is has so many areas and dive sites that are the holy grail mm. for divers. I mean, people do travel from all over the world and pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get to these quite remote places because the, the, the biodiversity uh, and the pristine nature of the corals and the just incredible amount of marine life is unprecedented. There is nowhere else in the world like it. So that is where Southeast Asia, you know, as opposed to somewhere like the, the Caribbean, um, uh, is head and shoulders above it. And, you know, there are very few people that would try to argue otherwise. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of great stuff to see in the Caribbean. But um, in terms of like bang for your buck, uh, and in terms of seeing truly unique underwater marine life, um, seeing things that otherwise are quite rare, then it's all here in, in Asia. I'd say actually the only other place uh, which I've only explored a little bit, and I'd love to go back, is South mm. Africa and Mozambique uh, also have an incredible diversity. Um, uh, Egypt uh, also is uh, one of those areas that has such a huge coastline uh, that although it, it used to be very well dived before all the political crisis, um, uh, there were still plenty of places sort of being discovered and down into Sudan as well. Uh, and obviously it's a bit more tricky around there. But uh, yeah, so there, there's there's several other real big hotspots in the world. But in terms of just like uh, an embarrassment of riches in Southeast Asia is where it's at. Hmm. Well, if you're loving diving in the Philippines and you're loving diving in, you're loving diving in Indonesia so much, I mean... Why are you living in Bangkok, and and why does Thailand still attract so much? Then I guess. Yeah, does, does the diving in Thailand still stand up to to the Philippines or Indo? Um, well, I mean, I've got a very soft spot for the diving in Thailand. I mean, it's it is basically where I fell in love with the ocean, and so, uh, yeah. I mean, I think the thing is for me uh, that there's a, a a concept called shifting baselines, which is a very dry phrase, but it's very useful. Uh, basically, if someone learns to dive today and jumps in the water in Thailand, they will be like, wow, this is incredible, it's amazing. Because it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the waters, the diving around Thailand is still great. But if you were there that diving that same site 10 years ago, you would notice the, the way that it has been degraded and um, mm. the corals have got battered, that there's less marine life, all these kind of bits and pieces. And um, there's also just the thing of like the thrill of the new. Um, the Philippines again has got so many different places to go and dive it's just that thing of like you know I've dived the Simulan Islands I've been there about 20 different times over the last 15 years you know I, I it's not that I don't need to do it again I'd love to go back there but I'm also really curious about seeing new places that I haven't visited before so I certainly wouldn't want to put anyone off diving in Thailand I think I think particularly as well if um, if you are just starting out as a diver then any time in the water is always fascinating, you know, just because this whole new world has opened up to you. I mean, now suddenly like seven tenths of the world is like open to you underwater as opposed to the one third you only ever see on land. Um, so I, people tend to get hung up about, oh, where's the best place to go and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't really work like that. And besides, usually your perception of what you're seeing underwater when you're just beginning to dive 
it's so narrow because you're so focused on your buoyancy and making sure you don't crash into stuff and you know that you're not maybe paying that much attention to the environment around you you're just focused on yourself and then as you relax into it and diving becomes second nature and buoyancy becomes you know uh, perfected and you basically feel like an astronaut floating in space when you're underwater and you get that sense of calm and essentially meditation that comes with it then that lets you look around and really enjoy the environment around you and i think when you start when you start to pick out the nuances of places then yeah you'll you'll find lots in thailand and but by that point you'll you'll want to go looking in other places as well to find you know um particular creatures or whatever that you rarely rarely see in thailand yeah, I mean, you have really covered the region from your website, divehappy.com, which, uh, I mean, hosts your podcast as well. So if people want to hear more about your diving and diving in the region, it's definitely the place to go. You've you've hit all the countries. And, I, I mean, you said the Philippines and Indo are great. What, how, can you rank the countries from, like, best to worst? Or do you, is that something you like to avoid? <laughs> I mean, Trevor and I were honestly saying we're both underwhelmed by the diving we've done in Thailand. Um, so I'm kind of curious. I mean, you said, oh, well, Thailand's still a great place to dive. So I'm, I mean, but then I guess you're rating it compared to the best places in the world as well. But where are the... Sure. Yeah, I mean... Well, I would think, you know, there, there's obviously, for me nowadays, I'm interested in interesting underwater topography or maybe seeing some species of shark that I've never seen in the water. Um, you know, maybe for people who have never dove in Asia, what are some of the, the, the main reasons why they should come here? What are some of the primary attractions? You said like the biodiversity in Indonesia for sure, but what are some of the other like primary attractions or primary draws in the region? Um, okay. Well, there's, there's two different questions there. So just what, um, the first thing is like if you are underwhelmed by what you see in Thailand I think I think there's an issue always with managing expectations about what you expect to see um, so that that's one so I'm, I'm not criticizing you for being underwhelmed because obviously ev everyone has their own and that, this is the thing with diving it's so wildly subjective about how people will enjoy or not enjoy the same dive site um, the so the thing that you will always, or the reasons to come to Asia, I mean, uh, the, the, the obvious one is in Sendrawasa Bay in Indonesia, uh, where you basically can have the most incredible whale shark encounters where normally whale sharks are rarely seen. If you de do see one, you're privileged for it to basically be a, a drive-by. You know, it, it'll appear, it'll be around for a few seconds if you're lucky, and then it'll disappear again. Uh, and these are the, the biggest fish in the in the world. They can be up to 18 meters in length. I mean, they are absolute giants. Uh, completely harmless. They they feed on plankton. Um, whereas this in Sendrawasa Bay, uh, you will get four or five of them turning up at the same time, and they will just hang around you because they're basically feeding from the uh, Indonesian fishing platforms that are floating on the surface. Um, yeah, it, it's, it is pretty special to be in the water with five whale sharks that are all just moving around you and they're completely unfazed by human beings in the water. They basically don't care. They just want to get to the food. I mean, they're not going to run you over or whatever, um, but there's something really quite spectacular about... Uh, and I think the biggest one we've seen there was eight metres long and, of course, they're completely silent. So one minute you're looking around and uh, it's completely 
completely empty blue and then the next minute this thing is just passing over your head <laughs> um, so that's one the other the other one I'd say you, you mentioned about topography I mean uh, around Mazul uh, Island uh, within Rajaram Pat in Indonesia uh, which is kind of like at the moment it's sort of like the the number one place everyone wants to go to it's just I, I would argue that Komodo is just as great as Rajaram Pat for um, yeah, for seeing a variety of different things, but whatever. I mean, they're both amazing places. Um, but in Mizul, they have absolutely spectacular coral reef. I mean, coral reef like Finding Nemo. I mean, it is like someone's gone down there and painted it with fluorescent markers. It is absolutely jaw-dropping. And, of course, the problem is with the rising temperature of the oceans is that there's a lot of pressure on corals elsewhere in the world. And in Mizul... Uh, the the water has naturally always been quite warm so at the moment it's surviving but no one's quite sure how long that will continue I mean the whole thing's a roll of the dice at the moment um, uh, in terms of sharks I mean if you want to see great whites then you'd head to Australia um, and there's some absolutely spectacular diving you can do off the south coast of Australia um, out of the Neptune Islands um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, it's sort of hard, and if you want manta rays as well, which are kind of my favourite, then the Maldives delivers that in absolute spades. If you want to see, um, you know, manta rays in trains as they're all feeding on plankton, sort of moving in rows of four or five, and that's where you can go and see them. The thing is with these things is that, you know, you can't randomly jump in the water and just see this stuff. There obviously has to be quite a lot of planning and thought about it, and sometimes... And I've done this, I went on a trip to the Maldives, it was complete bust, nothing turned up. <laughs> so that's just, you know, it's, it's the shark. ocean, it's not an aquarium. Yeah. Well, you know, you touched on uh, rising sea temperatures, and I've heard a fair bit about coral bleaching and compromised dive sites. How are the reefs and sites in Southeast Asia faring? Well, they're faring remarkably well. I mean, the, there's been a lot of, ever since I've been diving here, there's been a lot of pessimism, because frankly, unless there is the political will to make the sweeping changes that are needed to uh, obviously reduce carbon emissions, to clean up the waters, to stop overfishing, blah, blah, blah. You know, we don't need to go through it. Unless all of that is enacted at a governmental level, then, you know, grassroots efforts are not futile, but they're certainly hampered. Um, I think the Philippines actually, uh, Indonesia's been moving pretty fast in the last couple of years to, to start implementing this stuff, which is very, very positive, uh, thanks to a lot of lobbying by all various individuals and, and other international groups. But in the Philippines, there's some very heartening areas. My favorite place there is a place called Sogod Bay, S-O-G-O-D, um, and that's uh, down on the island of Leyte, L-E-Y-T-E. And uh, it's basically this massive great gulf. The gulf is so big, it's where the Japanese war fleet hid during the Second World War. And um, yeah, it's, and it's also Leyte is the island where, where MacArthur came back. You know, he said, I will return. That's actually the island he landed on. There's this massive statue to commemorating the, the beach that he landed on. Anyway, um, and Sogod, uh, I think 20 years ago, maybe a bit longer, there was a, a very forward thinking governess, because obviously 20 years ago, no one really thought about the reefs and blah 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 and she decreed that the gulf would be protected and that there would be no overfishing and there would be no dynamite fishing and 
essentially just lay down the law. And, and miraculously, it was enforced, and the fishermen went with it. And now, as a result, uh, 20 years on, every successive governor has continued you know, the, the laws that she, she set out. And now the reefs there are, frankly, in better condition now than they were 20 years ago. Um, this is from you know talking to guys who own resorts there and have basically you know, they've they've retired there so they've been living there for the last 20 years um so that's really heartening that, that you know, there are some really good um stories at a local level on missoula island that i was just talking to you about there's a place called the missoula eco resort and they built the entire resort out of driftwood the, the whole thing is made from completely sustainable materials and everyone thought they were completely insane and they did it hand in hand with the local villagers who basically gave them permission to build a resort and now the resort has a huge great no take zone around it which means no one can go fishing for like i think it's 40 square kilometers around the island and that's patrolled by the villagers um, and the funding all the money that comes into the resort goes to build schools in the villages and provide jobs and so it's this fantastic virtuous circle um, and they're hoping to continue that blueprint um, to other resorts because obviously it's it's a huge amount of work um, but with the people when people sort of decide to do it and I think most importantly when they stay there rather than trying to set up a scheme and then just disappearing I think in Asia a lot of stuff is driven by force of personality like you, you basically have to be living there on the island yourself day in, day out to show the locals that you mean it, that you're committed, that you're not just going to jet off on your helicopter every five minutes sort of thing. Um, so those kind of things are really, really sort of positive and exciting. And they're a sort of nice antidote to the general sense of gloom about, well, I mean, forget the oceans. So the world in general is in decline in a sort of um, environmental way. So, yeah, maybe there's some hope there. Well, that's good. It's great to hear about some places that uh, are weathering the, so weathering the storm, so to speak, and uh, are still worth uh, going to see and dive. Are there any places that you can think of that have jumped the shark, so to say, that, are, that used to be really popular dive sites but that are not really worth visiting anymore? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's, again, there's a sort of thing about it goes back to the thing of managing expectations. It's like, what are, you, what are you actually looking to do when you go diving? So if you're learning to dive, then to go to somewhere popular like Katao or to um, the Gili Islands in, you know, in Indonesia, um, those are good places. They're great places to learn to dive because it's an industry there. Uh, but if you were a serious diver and you were like, okay, I want to go and see some manta rays or I want to go and see some, you know, go and find some small, some of the small macro things like nudibranchs, you know, the sea slugs are very, very colorful, that sort of stuff. Um, then, then those places are not really going to do it for you in terms of like, um, being absolutely thrilling in terms of every dive of what you're going to see. So in that sense, I think it's more about you have to choose wisely about where you decide to go. I, you know, it goes back to the thing, you can't just expect to jump in and, and uh, to see whatever you want. And I think in terms of places, you know, places that are not worth diving, there's always something to be found. I mean, I would say, for example, um, in Cambodia and Vietnam, there are very few people that are gonna say, hey guys, the 
diving here is world class. You've got to see it. I mean, it's 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 well known even amongst the industries there that the diving there is not that great, but it's good enough. And some of the guys in Cambodia uh, again are doing some amazing restorative work to the reefs, which you know, uh, unfortunately, like during the Khmer Rouge days and so forth, they all got dynamited and stuff like that. Um, so there's guys yeah doing a lot of work to restore it and fix it. And again, if like if you if you are um, if you've already learned a lot about what you're seeing when you're underwater, then you can go diving in an area that seems to be completely barren and find all kinds of things in it. Uh, and this actually is a whole now like a, a, a separate niche of the diving industry. It's called muck diving because you literally go diving in some of the nastiest like so basically like um, in Ambon, you can go diving in the harbour, which you can imagine is just strewn with rubber tires and oil and god knows what um you you want to make sure you have a proper scrub off in the shower afterwards but for some reason and no one's quite figured it out in these places that are terribly polluted and messed up there are some of the most incredibly rare uh species of uh nudibranchs uh, rhinopias seahorses all kind octopus all kinds of stuff just down there so that if you with a guide who has got you know knows what he's looking for and, and some of the some of the guides in the Philippines and Indonesia are just amazing how they can just find things you every couple of minutes it's like they're banging their tank is like check this out you can't it's almost like you you can't take a photo quick enough because there's something else to go and look at so that has actually become a real big thing for a lot of divers now it isn't the picture postcard of diving that most people think of but it goes to my point of like once you persuade someone into it or usually actually the, when you say look we're gonna go diving here and just you know just just go along with it just see what happens uh usually after the first time they've done it they're hooked um some people refuse to get in the water because it's so dirty but it's like you know most people are like fine with it well you kind of touched on i guess two of them but a quick quick question is where should people go to learn to dive and get certified in in southeast asia because i know it's it's huge i got certified in a glacier lake in canada and i'm like why did i do that so if people come <laughs> here where should where's where's the great places to get certified okay well i would say that um i i would say that like so for example if you were backpacking in thailand or whatever then i would say you know go to Koh chang go to Kolanta, go to Katao and do your open water course because frankly wherever you are to do it it doesn't matter it's like what you do want though is you want to make sure you've got a good instructor and by that i mean one that's had some experience and knows what they're doing they're not just straight out of um instructor school um i think if you look on uh, forums like scubaboard.com, you know, you will find probably plenty of anecdotal recommendations of particular dive schools or whatever in particular locations. Uh, going back to the place I mentioned, the Philippines, Sogo Bay, I think that actually would be a great place to learn to dive because it's got a real variety of dive sites, uh, plenty of shallow stuff. Um, and also somewhere like that, there's not many divers go there. So you're going to get really good one-to-one -one time with whoever's instructing you and obviously the guys there they do it for a living it's their livelihood you know because they're filipinos like they like they they you know they're usually 
co-owners or partners in the resort to some extent so like that they need to make sure that place runs really well and that everyone's happy you know, they're not just like passing through and heading off somewhere else you know after they've done a, a season in, in this place um yeah you go something like that and i think i mean just going by the people i've talked to uh, when i've been at Sogol Bay is like they are deliriously happy I mean they it that place feels like you remember you know the the novel The Beach by Alex Garland Sogol Bay is kind of a bit like that it feels without all the, the drugs and the death and the violence but it uh, you know it's the Philippines and it it's one of those places that I think only about four or five hundred people go there a year um, and so it feels like it's your own little place that you've discovered even though obviously plenty of other people know it's there too um it and mainly because it's quite hard work to get to but i think that one-on-one -on -one thing uh, can really make it i had that in australia when i first started diving i was a very nervous diver i used to go through my air really quickly um and i had one particular instructor just took me aside and just very gently said okay look we're gonna just go through a bit of this all over again and you know he just had that way he could figure out what i was doing wrong and with just a few pointers set me right and it clicked for me and i got it and i think maybe that's what people maybe want to look for if they're going to go and come and learn to dive is that if they don't want to go to the big the big dive areas where everyone goes to learn um then maybe go and look for something like that yeah i kind of like that advice uh you know, and, and, and I almost feel like at a place like Kotao, you don't know that the there probably are some great dive instructors, but there's also probably lots of new people who just got their dive instructor certificate or, you know, so sure. I kind of feel like some place that's a little bit more off the beaten path, but has a really nice swimming pool because you're going to be spending half your time in the pool anyway, instead of in, in the water. Sure. I mean, don't forget as well, like Kotao for a lot of people, uh, you know, like when, when I, I mean, I, I lived there for like six months and then went back for another six months um it, it's kind of a place it, it's a rite of passage you know for a lot it is on the circuit so and you will get you would get guy i don't know so much if they go there anymore but you would get lots say of israeli guys that all just been you know demobbed from their two years national service so they'd be traveling as a group and it would be like okay and now we're gonna go to kotel and we're gonna get learned to get certified and you know so it was all just part of the a, a big jolly you know and that was great and yeah. It was, yeah it was always fun to hang around with those guys it's kind of more, I, yeah, so I think that's the thing, is just to, to sort of be aware of... Um, like Lanta, that, that makes more sense. Go to Lanta, find a place right. that's a little bit right. more chilled out, and probably be a better idea. How about for more advanced divers, any good tips for, for places to go? Um, well, the, the, yeah, the key thing is with the, the advanced diving, the main, the main figure of that is, uh, is going to 30 metres. The, the deep dive is the key part, and also the night dive. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. And Indonesia, I've got to say, it has just got some spectacular night dives around um, Komodo. I mean, I'm not really mm. that big a fan of night diving, but in Komodo, I was mm. out every night because it's it's basically like night and day. Literally, like someone like flips a switch and a whole bunch of different stuff just comes out at night. Yeah. So uh, I also get amazing bio phosphorescence. So like when you mm. come out of the as you well, as you're coming up to the water, you pull your hand out, then you just get this shower of sparks shooting off your hand because of all the the uh, it's sort of like neon um, the little creatures in the water. 
<laughs> I didn't explain that very well, but anyway, it's very, it's very pretty. Um, no, but I think uh, people know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I mean, the deep diving, like uh, I, I guess the sort of main use case of that is uh, wrecks. Uh, uh, it's always amazing to see shipwrecks, and they tend to sort of be sitting, you know, maybe the 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 stern is at twenty meters, but the bow is at thirty meters, that sort of stuff. I mean, going advanced, I think, is definitely worth doing just to make sure that you are comfortable below eighteen meters, because there are times when you do need to go below eighteen meters. I mean, since I got into photography, I tend to bob around between sort of. 15 to 5 meters because that's where the light is you know so it makes for much more interesting images um and i've got friends though that they are forever tearing off down to 35 meters because they're looking for sharks um because that's where you're going to find them if you really want to see them uh particularly out in the maldives uh you, you know you go down to 35 meters in on specific dive sites they will be there um and so yeah, there, there's all kinds of uh, things like that. It's it it's again of like the level of comfort you have because obviously if you're at 30 meters and something goes wrong, you better hope your buddy's right next to you because you know you won't be coming back up um, uh, without them. <laughs> so there, there's a whole sort of level there of like you you need to be very much more aware of what you're doing. Well, you've um, given a, a ton of information here, but. Just kind of one of the last questions. I mean, what should people keep in mind when planning a diving holiday to Southeast Asia? Are there any kind of basics that you haven't covered here that people should keep in mind? Uh, I think be clear about what it is you want. I think that's the main thing. For example, uh, Thailand Aggressor. Uh, so Aggressor, the Aggressor fleet, is the biggest collection of liverboards in the world. They have a liverboard in pretty much every country that has, you know, serious diving they're an american company so they're big in the caribbean but they have boats in indo and thailand and stuff and um i was talking to the owner uh, uh wayne brown and he was saying to me that the the uh, um, you know the american divers they love coming to thailand because it's precisely because it's so accessible and that means they can do the seven days of diving on the boat and obviously it's a nice luxury boat and then they get off the boat and then they can do lots of uh we call it topside stuff. So go and see temples and all that kind of thing. And for a lot of people, they, they want that mix of stuff. For me personally, I don't care so much about seeing topside stuff. If I'm going somewhere to go diving, I'm just diving. That's it. I'm not, you know, I'm, unless there's something absolutely spectacular, unmissable that I've got to go and see. Um, so I think that's the main thing is just sort of be aware of what you actually want to get out of it. Because I think the better that you plan... Uh, your own ideas of what you want to see if there's a particular creature you want to see research that research the time of year research the different options uh, ask on forums about that um, and be prepared to be disappointed because it might not show up so find other things huh. that will you know find other things that will compensate for that disappointment <laughs> um, so that, that's it really I mean I, I think the the main thing is as well though is, is it what's really exciting is about somewhere like um indonesia so if you do a liverboard through komodo let's and say let's say you spend seven days or a week i mean if you were coming from america you're you're going to stay for at least two weeks so you should try and stay for four if you can because it's such a long way to come mm -hmm. um but you do a 10-day cruise through komodo and you really will feel like you've got your money's worth because you'll see different topography above the water every day as you sail from north to south 
and you'll see different topography under the water and temperatures under the water as well. Um, and so somewhere like that is maybe a great place to start, but just because there's kind of something for everyone. So if you haven't done a liverboard before and you're not sure where to go, I would say Komodo is a pretty good place to start. Cool. Great one. Well, uh, last one. I mean, how can people learn more about you and your escapades? <laughs> well, they can find me at divehappy.com. And uh, I am also doing my own little podcast, just like yours. So I'm interviewing various interesting people that are involved in diving and doing different things. And several of the, um, the things I've talked about, you'll hear, you can find podcasts with uh, the owners of the resorts and uh, scientists hmm. who have been doing research cool. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and also, I've got some of my friends to come on and talk about different diving areas, like, for example, Myanmar, which we haven't touched on. Um, and just trying to explain a bit about what makes those particular destinations unique and, and, and worthy of, of your interest and consideration. Because at the end of the day, all I want to do is help people figure out what they want, what they would like to do, and where they should go. And that, for me, is kind of like, if you can point people in the right direction, then it's kind of job done. Very good. Thanks, Chris. Uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, that sounds great. If I could give you okay. any advice, I would say uh, learn to surf because uh, you can do a lot up on top of the water. Too. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's, that's actually the thing I was um, trying to get at earlier when I talked about skydiving is that scuba, I mean, mm. I've never surfed, but the what I've seen, I've met a lot of surfers and the way that people get that sort of dreamy look in their eye when they're really into surfing I think there's a similar thing there with if you're into scuba or if you're into yoga or if you're into base jumping or something mad like that is that it is it gives you that sort of weirdly transcendental sense like you're outside of yourself but you're in nature yeah. and it gives you uh, I think a remarkable perspective on the world and I think that's the reason to to persist with any of these kind of sports is as a way of actually like opening up your own mind and also seeing much more of the world both both in terms of what you're physically encountering, but also like how you think about it. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been a real treat talking to you, and uh, thanks for sharing with our listeners. Cool. Thank you very much. So I am now officially excited about going diving in Komodo sometime. Yeah, you know, I really only dove off of Bali and like Gili and uh, was always impressed. So, you know, I'd love to explore more of the diving in Indo for sure. Yeah, one thing he said that I totally agree with is get your advanced. I got my advanced on the Barrier Reef in Australia as a backpacker like 20 years ago. And when I was doing that course, I realized, man, in many ways, I don't think open water is really enough experience to be kind of confident in the water. So I think if you plan on doing kind of any really amount of diving beyond your open water, get the advanced too. It's, it's really uh, worth it. I don't it. know. You know, I mean, I feel pretty confident in the water, like reading the water, the currents and stuff like that. So I think I'll save my money to pay for the liveaboard and do a couple extra days on the boat. Yeah. I kind of, I, I kind of got soured on diving. Like I got a bit bored with it, but like, yeah, again, him yeah. talking about Komodo and stuff like, wow, that sounds pretty neat. Yeah. And again, talking about surfing there at the end, like, I think that's a good way to combine it. Like we've been talking about sure. the Philippines trip lately and it's like you, you do some surfing and you do some diving. And if you're on a boat, you try and combine the two. I think that's the best way to really do it. Cause if you're just diving, like I'm kind of with you, like so I, I snorkeling is good enough for me most of the time. Um, unless there's some really cool shit you can only see like with a tank on. 
Yeah, the one thing, I mean, to keep in mind, a lot of these places like in the Philippines and Indo he's talking about, it's like multiple flights, right? So you've got to yeah. really be into it to, to devote that effort to it. And I guess that's maybe what's held me back. But yeah, I mean, Chris was, wow, fascinating, full of great info. And man, he is upbeat about everything about diving. He's really, really positive about it. Yeah, he's got a really good perspective. And again, like I actually have met people in Cambodia that are like, no, Cambodia is world class. And I don't necessarily think that's true. But again, like with the muck diving and the macro life, like the seahorses apparently are, are spectacular in Cambodia. So like if you're a diving geek and you're really into seeing stuff like seahorses, like, yeah, you're going to find some some fun stuff to see in, in places like Cambodia. even. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad we finally got an expert about diving on because uh, he had a lot more to share about it than you and I did on that earlier episode. So, so yeah, I'm a, sure. a little excited. Maybe I got to make a trip to uh, Komodo, but uh, hope everyone enjoyed that. That was a great one. And uh, we're going to be back in two weeks with something new. Yeah, can't wait to, to talk then. So uh, from Bangkok, this is Trevor saying thank you for listening. And this is Scott from Yangon, Myanmar saying thanks a lot. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia? 